RA Exchange. Hey, welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Chloe Lula, Exchange's senior producer. Today, I'm happy to welcome Seth Troxler to the show, a name who is familiar for RA, but who surprisingly has yet to grace the exchange's airwaves. Seth was born in suburban Michigan and came of age in Detroit. Today, he's a resident of the world. At different points, he's lived in London, Berlin, Ibiza, and back in the States, where he's headlined the world's biggest festivals and clubs. Seth is fascinating not only as a selector, but also because of his parallel pursuits in the worlds of contemporary art and cuisine. He even launched his own restaurant, Smoky Tales, a barbecue restaurant in London's Bethnal Green. He calls his love of cooking all-consuming when he's not on the road. More recently, Seth has focused his creative energies on his Lost Souls of Saturn project, which sits firmly at the intersection of futuristic electronica, contemporary art, and technology, and has shown at the Saatchi Gallery, The Met, and Art Basel in Switzerland. In this conversation recorded with RA's music editor, Andrew Rice, Seth dives deep into his quote-unquote high art practice and the vulnerability that comes with playing in these contexts. He adds that there is an allure to being part of a world that is held to deep, critical standards, and that if club culture is able to use these same tools, we could collectively better discern the trends that are and are not relevant. Seth also reflects on how his approach to making music and being a DJ has changed over the last few years. Married with children, he says that the reasons why he does what he does is to provide for his family, to be an example, and to create a legacy for his kids. He sees himself, and all older DJs for that matter, at the peak of their powers. They don't hit their stride until their mid-30s, he says, and they don't reach their height until their 40s or 50s. If you look at the history of DJs or whatever, DJs really get their stride in their mid-30s to early 40s. That's when it's like the power years of you really understanding, I think. And I'm kind of think I'm getting into that, that part of my career and understanding of contribution in electronic music. While he's certainly been a name on everyone's minds for a number of years, Seth Troxler seems to be renewing himself as an artist over and over again. For anyone who's questioned why they're involved in club culture and the ethos and longevity around it, this interview is for them. Thanks so much for tuning in. Without further ado, here is the one and only Seth Troxler. Welcome to the RA Exchange. I am Andrew Rice. I am the deputy editor and music editor at Resident Advisor. Uh, I'm here with Seth Troxler. Hello. Do you want to say anything about yourself? I'm just a guy <laughs> sitting here with Andrew. I don't know. I, I'm a DJ. I think people know me. <laughs> it's kind of funny, right? So our very first feature on you back in 2008 was called Young Seth Troxler. Yeah. Now it's 2023. Do you feel like old Seth Troxler? Uh, no, I feel like adult Seth Troxler. I've been going through some real adulting in my life, kind of from the pandemic on getting married, having kids, you know, two kids, a wife and a mortgage type of situation. <laughs> Recently did a, was remodeling a home and had to deal with some very adult things. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. My wife and I were talking about it. She's like, this kind of adult thing sucks, you know? <laughs> It's so funny to me because 
from 2008. You know, I graduated high school in 2004. Um, like, you know, I played at Panorama Bar and that stuff when I was like 2005, all these things. But the kind of career I've had and, you know, also you guys, as I was saying earlier, we we're speaking about how RA has kind of been a documentation of my life from kind of teen and young adult to now uh, being a, you know, being 38 or whatever. And just the different phases of my career in so many ways. I mean, it's amazing that, what is 2008, 23, what is that, 15 years? Yeah, in the, in the 15 years to still be able to be here and you guys still want to talk to me, which is <laughs> like, you know, that's that's a, a blessing, but yeah. Was it the pandemic that triggered this kind of change in your life or was it something before then? Uh, I, I think we're always constantly evolving, you know, uh, or hopefully we are. I think the pandemic changed some things in the sense that um, when it was 2012, maybe I was the RA number one or whatever. And you do all this stuff early in your life. You win all these awards, do all these things to keep yourself as an artist interested or into evolving is becomes the hardest point, right? Why am I doing this? The why to the, to the action of creating or playing. And, you know, I remember after becoming the number one RA, I was using Tractor before. I was like, I'm going to prove a point. I'm going to play only records. Cause you know, I grew up with Cervito and all these other people who I highly admire, Carl Sufra, plus Laco. And I was like, these guys are way better DJs than me, but I got the number one. So I need to prove the point that I'm, I earned it or something like that. You know, and it's like all this stuff you make up in your mind and you do all these different things and like imposter syndrome, all this different stuff. And then you, you know, then you get there and then you, you know, all life and girlfriends and all this. And then after the pandemic, when we had to stop, it really kind of put back in my mind how much I, I loved, you know, like, you know, it's your passion from, I mean, I've been going to a rave every weekend since 2000, you know? So it's like 23 years of being at parties and listening to music. And when we lost that, I really saw how much I, I loved doing this so much and everything. So I got a new energy, I guess, again, for both making music and then as well for, um, for why I play. And then I, on the top of that, having the children and wife, which gives you another edge, I think, in your mind about the whys in your life. You know, that's, that's really what changed kind of my perspective on so many things. You know, I think for so many years, I was somewhat of a angsty, provocateur teen. And now I'm like, dad joke, like, <laughs> you know, get the job done. And like, you know, try to create some type of legacy. You know, I think that, that those changes happened in some ways. What is the why you play? The why now? I mean, outside of this fucking loving it. <laughs> like, I love being at a party and seeing back and seeing the people and this whole culture that goes with it. But also, I think a, a new why that I have that I never had before was uh, providing for my family, you know, and trying to be an example or create some things for my kids in the future to really look back and be like, you know, dad was cool. <laughs> they're not going to think I was cool, but like maybe when they're older, they're like, yeah, that's cool. You know? So I think those, those changed a lot rather than I think before it was like, you're trying to prove some points or whatever, you know, I don't think you have to teach everyone all the time anymore. Like you have to have a point. I mean, I have a point musically. I, I try to play or continue this idea of, 
the concept of dance music we came from you know people you can't see in the back over there <laughs> we've been hanging out for many years and <laughs> like all of us going to raise for a long time and i think it's important to preserve that kind of culture and idea is really important to me for new generations because there's these generational and fan changes right i've realized i'm on my third fourth generation of fan because they age out have families do all these things and young kids don't really care so much about what you and your friends did in 2008 you know or like when they were like in middle school right so you you change those things but yeah do you feel like when you have to support your family does that change the strategy of how you're touring where you're playing does it does it feel different no i mean I play now more for the people and less for whatever moody thing I could be in, you know? Like now it's like, hey, you get up there, you look at the situation, whether it's playing Panorama Ball or DC-10 or some corporate gig for Heineken or like some bottle service place, I don't really care. I'm like, I'm going to look at the people, see what they want to hear and play the right music for that situation. And that's opened up a lot more shows for me and like different brackets of how this really works you know and it's not like trying to do this thing it's kind of like hey do what you're paid to do and hope they ask you back you know rather than just being like i think it should be like this and like you know leaving that i think that there's an arrogance to that you know that some artists kind of perpetuate and i don't think it's really right i used to think some of those things were right but i think my ideas from being young you know like what is it 22 to 38 you just evolve right so yeah how has your approach to djing or even like how you act at a party or like like live at a party changed from like 2010 to now oh <laughs> wow um, that's <laughs> also, I think it's pretty well documented. <laughs> like, the antics and shenanigans we used to all get into back then. I mean, I was, it was a different time as well. I think the age we came from and back then that out of pocket behavior and this kind of real nightlife ah, animal thing was kind of rewarded for many years. And that was the a lot of people we looked up to, you know, fat and rich, you know, all these, it was like this, like who, who had the strength, right. <laughs> to be this, this like, you know, Ricardo, all these things, you know, I think now the culture and like how people look at artists has changed a lot more. It's not about that overt hedonism, you know, uh, that hedonism does still exist. And I love that, you know, to, to, to see it. But I think also at some point I started to get to a point even towards, just eight years ago, like end of Jesus and other things, I was ready, happy to pass off the torch to other people to be the main hedonist. You know, like I was like, I'm fine. I'm dying. I'm dying, coach. You know, don't put me in. The so, um, yeah, that's that definitely has changed greatly. I mean, now, you know, I drink mates, you know, like I don't stay up two days before the gig to play a good gig. You know, I sleep regularly. And yeah, no, it's just. I put my hand out to any kid out there who's living the dream, you know, with their friends at 22, have, have fun while you can. But, uh, yeah, I think that's changed. And I just, I think just as a society, we've all become more responsible, more interested in our mental health or like what a <laughs> quote unquote, but, uh, you know, 
trying to strive to be healthy. I don't know. <laughs> um, I think that's been the biggest change is just becoming an adult like everyone goes through. I think just few people went through it in the public eye, right? That's a big difference. Does uh, DJing feel different in this adult mode? Is it still I just DJ fun? better. <laughs> like, it's so funny how much easier it is to DJ when you're not totally fucked up. <laughs> um, you know, word to the wise. <laughs> I mean, also you can play really good if you're fucked up, but uh, you know, it's not all the time. <laughs> um, but um, no, I think now, I mean, and everyone's like, oh, Seth, you're playing so good. I'm like, so not, I'm, I think I even used to play even cooler music, but how I approach DJing now is just get people, it's just all about like, you know, there's a hit for every moment in time, you know, there's a right song for every moment. So I think just trying to hone in on that and find those those moments, you know, but really methodically after all these years of DJing, you know, I had this great conversation with this guy, Pedro. He's one of the people who run in Lisbon, Lux. And he's like, you know, Seth, you know, him and Rui, he's like, you know, DJs don't really get good until their mid 40s, 50s. <laughs> And, you know, now I'm on that stride. He's like, you you know, you're kind of with that crew, so you're in a bit of an exception. But I really feel like if you look at the history of DJs or whatever, DJs really get their stride in their mid-30s to early 40s. That's when it's like the power years of you really understanding, I think, what it takes to – I mean, because you have the raw talent and all that stuff before. I mean, even look at the Fortet situation. You know, he's in his he's in later part of his career. He's having this moment, right? It's when you had all this – and Skrillex, I think Skrillex 40-something as well. When you have all this stuff that you have from your early career, when you had this big moment to then kind of, you know, figure it out after that, you know, because it's like this kind of teen angst. You know, I think our society is so focused on new that like it takes away from the development of artists, right? Because it's always about the new thing that's also comes, often comes from a teen or amateur perspective, which is great. That's kind of what propels music since the 80s, Annie Lennox, all this stuff, this amateur perspective of music. But when it comes to like really great artistry, I think it's the time past that first peak of like that teen, incredible savant artist point to then like that artist in its later years create these, these really great pieces of art, you know? And I'm kind of think I'm getting into that, that part of my career and understanding of contribution in electronic music to make some of those things. I'm perceivably trying to make those things. What have you learned about DJing over the past 10 years? Patience. Patience is everything. I have this whole proverb about being lazy, right? <laughs> I my friend Hector is here and he, uh, he was my tour manager for, for some years and hey, we called it the, the Troxler University, right? And one of the biggest things, I kind of learned this actually from Craig Richards. And he's like, Seth, you got to be a bit lazy with it. You know, there's like this whole thing about over-preparation takes away from the act. I think the act of DJing or the artistic act is about spontaneity, right? It's about the, the act that happens in the moment, you know, and understanding this thing, you know, rather than like the completely carved out Kind of, I guess that's a that's a different action, but in my sense, DJing is about the spontaneity, yes, yeah, spontaneous kind of connectivity with an audience, an idea, and keeping these moments based on the interaction that you have, right? And I learned to be kind of, yeah, I guess I would say, yeah, more patient and relaxed about the whole process. Like now, I just kind of 
it's like this kind of meditation moment of two, one, two, three, you know, where I think before you have so many different things in your mind where after so many years, you understand the simplicity of the action itself that allows you to play more music, to understand the situations more. It's like a culmination of many years, I think of different situational moments that then you then for each of those moments, you can kind of bring them out of some capsule in your brain to be like, okay, this, oh, I remember this one. This, this is this song, you know, like this. So I guess that's something I, I've kind of learned over the years, you know. I also learned to be less, this isn't really DJing, but being less critical to others and other ideas and everyone's right. Opinions are like assholes. Everyone's got one, right? So like what makes yours right or mine right or anyone's right, you know, it's like they're all right, you know, and I think that's kind of something that really I look back at it and I'm like, hmm. It kind of simmered down a little bit, you know, but uh, yeah. Do you think that patience comes with growing up? Patience definitely comes with growing up. I mean, are you more patient now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it's angst. There's a teen angst. There's something about the passion of of youth, you know, and the idea that uh, this great quote is that youth is wasted on the young, right? And sometimes it's true. There's a, a different type of total obsession that you have in your youth that you build your obsessions for life and that kind of I'll take it on situation. And I think later in life, maybe you've had more failures and other things and you've seen the world actually for what it is. And you're like, eh, step by step, you know, that's not, don't break the back, you know, like it's gonna, you know, we can figure this out in a better means instead of trying to constantly take on the world, rather you're just, being part of the world. And I think that's, but it's laziness may not be the, the right term, but it's like a relaxed nature of, of life that I think really makes you a DJ. It's one after the other. You don't, you don't have to, you know, I have this whole philosophy in life that I've learned. It took me a very long time to figure this out. And I, some years ago I climbed Kilimanjaro, you know, if it's like cancer or brain cancer or whatever. When I had done it, I realized, you know, we, I was on the top of this fucking mountain on the top of Africa. Like, 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 what the fuck is going on in my life? But at that moment, I realized I took this time off in the middle of the summer to do this thing, right? But I took it off way before and I didn't really know how to get there or whatever. And I started to realize that like the best way for life is to find different things that you want to do, these goals, right? You have to continue to make new goals. That's the hardest part. But Basically, it's like if I tried to do something and I'm driving the car, I crash the tree. Relationships, anything. If I'm like, this is how it has to be. Like, like almost like not a moral, but like a like in life, if you're too focused on some imaginary version of how every all the events have to work, it doesn't ever fucking work, right? It's like, but when you just kind of like, all right, like an Uber ride, I say, it's to be the passenger. You know the destination you're trying to get to and you make the things to get there, but be relaxed about it and you just get there and it happens rather than when you're like so eager about trying, I, I need this, I need that. Then it's like, you're like fucking that tree it happens, right? But when you're like, yeah, I'm gonna go into Brooklyn. I'm gonna take the Uber. I don't know how the fuck we're gonna get there, but you know, you're gonna arrive at around the right time, you know, if you plan it right. <laughs> so I'm really big into this kind of passenger kind of situation with so much, you know, like the DJing, I never make 
plans of how I'm going to play. I have some different folders and stuff. They're kind of random. And I just show up and I'm just like, meh. Because if I'm surprised, if I kind of know a little bit of what's going on, then everyone else is surprised. And you just get a kind of more natural result, I think, in life in general. How well do you know the tracks in your folders and your records? Not so well. So how, how do you how do you do that? I don't know. I got a weird Dewey Decimal system <laughs> in my brain. I'm like fucking an idiot savant, man. I don't know. Like it's funny when other people DJ with me or they see me or something. They're like, "How the fuck are you doing this?" Like I use Record Box. I don't like nothing loops. Like, like it's just so random. I guess that's what makes my talent unique in some ways. But um, I mean, I know I know a lot of songs, but a lot of times I'll play stuff that I like downloaded like an hour ago whole set would be like brand new stuff and people are like wow that was great and i'm like i don't fucking even know what those tracks were <laughs> like, you know? but it's like you kind of know in your mind how they sound a little bit you know i think any dj for many years like the amount of time you have to listen to a song to know it's a good song sonically and how it's put together like you know kevin in the back or any of us you know it takes you two seconds yeah. you know you as a reviewer how long does it your ear sonically have to listen to something to be like all right, we're already on the yes or no. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, of, of the simplicity, the sound, you know, whatever. You're kind of already like, uh. you know, it's the same as with DJing. You can skim through a song and I know exactly what the song's going to do in, you know, 30 seconds. So if you kind of know this already of how things work, I have some different kind of techniques of how to mix and stuff. Keeping those for myself. You got <laughs> to go to Troxel University, get, get, get the full course. You know, <laughs> there are some tricks that we ha I have. But uh, yeah, generally, and it's like I like I like the spontaneity of it all. I like not knowing. That's exciting to me. Has your taste in what you play changed much? I play the same records I played since I was sixteen, like, like so many times. I do like vinyl sets, you know, Panorama Bar stuff. I like bring out these records I bought at Melodies and Memories in Detroit, great record store. I worked there when I was a kid. Um, still open. But uh, yeah, I'll play all these records I bought there when I four bucks. You know, these clubs are going out, but Fabric's going off, and I'm like, got this in high school, same record. <laughs> Derek Carter record still rocks, you know, <laughs> same copy. Uh, but yeah, I think the music hasn't really changed. That's the one thing I think keeps me going because my taste is the same. You know, how I mix, I think the evolution now of using a V10 has brought back the kind of things that I had before with the with tractor and all those effects and so many people like the fucking you know they like the kids the kids like the effects right you gotta <laughs> add the steam and do that so that's kind of common gone and being like a purist or like whatever I don't I don't really care however you mix is however you mix and that's fine by you know so your art is your art but uh, hey ho right. <laughs> Do you pay attention to trends or what's popular in, in clubs? Not at all. Over the years? I don't pay. That's because everything comes back around anyway, right? So instead of trying to like, like right now there's this trend of speed, you know, and that's to me, I'm like, I'm, it's too fast. <laughs> and I'm sorry, you can, again, I, I back in the day, I'd have some provocative statements here. Not going to do it. <laughs> Not going to do it. No, but uh, no, it's just too fast for me. But also, eventually, like, what is it? Sam Pagliotti? Paganini? Paganini? Pag Panini? Sam Panini? <laughs> <laughs> no, there's like this call to action about him and within his community about saying, like, okay, come on, techno. So techno for me is a different thing than what they're saying is techno now. But it's too fast, right? But, you know, house will eventually come back and it's everything. I've been calling for the, the return of vocal house is coming. <laughs> hey, little handbag house, you know, I'm playing some deep. 
you know, real New York Afro stuff. And, you know, it's good, it's good, good music. So when's freestyle going to come back? It's the only thing that has yet to be. <laughs> I was thinking about it the other day. I was like, if you look at popular music, everything's been recycled. I was like, but freestyle could have another revival True. moment, right? The Latin thing's happening yeah, yeah. a little bit in theory. Morgan Geist tried a few years ago. Yeah. And I know Chrissy put out something recently. Yeah. But... I love Chrissy stuff. That's great. But it's at some point. Yeah. Someone's going to get it. <laughs> Do you feel uh, pressure to play a, to a certain sound or vibe at all? No. I don't really care. <laughs> you know? I feel more pressure to to move the crowd, let's say, right? Than to look around to my peers of what they're doing or whatever else is going on, right? That That to me doesn't. I mean, it's kind of funny in that sense. Like I was talking to, to a friend, you know, he's been the thing for many years and he had all this stuff in his mind of what he should do or like, what is, what, what's the point? And I was like, hey man, just relax and don't care. <laughs> like, I was like, I was like, I don't think about it. You know, I don't think of myself as like Seth, the DJ or something. I'm a guy, I've got a thing that I do and I just keep doing that. And the repetition, I think of the same thing as an artist is, and you keep working on that over time is what art is, right? It's like the extension or the repetition of a process over time. You know, that's kind of, that's art, <laughs> you know? <laughs> at, the, at the end of the day, that's like, so for me, I just like keep doing it until I can't do it anymore or I can think of something else to do, but I just don't see that happening because I've done this my whole life. So yeah, I don't think kids got to look at trends so much because it also makes things a bit stale, you know? And this new album I'm working on or the music I make, it's pretty trendless. It's kind of my thing, you know? It doesn't, won't sell, but I don't care, <laughs> you know? But it's cool, you know? And it's really musical and it's sonically good. So that's cool for me. It's like with Lost Souls of Saturn, I have this project, whatever, with Phil Moffa. This is we're actually in Phil in, in my studio right now uh, here in Queens, baby! Queens, New York! Yeah, with, with that project, we've created all these different moments in time with, you know, we were at the Saatchi Gallery, did all these things, the Olaf Elson kind of thing with Foundation Byler, all these things that in the long term, in the art historical sense, you have to create things to create without wanting to be popular at the time, right? It doesn't fucking matter. But, you know, in 40 years, because if you, like us, we're, we're music historians in a way. We're kind of geek level on that yeah. thing where you like, you know, it's like a, it's a different cultural kind of reference to the whole picture of, of what dance music is. I think many people think very solely. And that's why I think also, and if you look at art and trend, why trend is so important, because within the art historical context, I think trend and new things are what's definitive in the, you know, that's what drives art, right? It's like new happenings happening or things that could only happen from technology or whatever of that time. Do they stay in the kind of linear or like the projection of what that art is over time? I don't know, but you have to report on them, right? All these new things, right? That's what keeps the thing moving. You can't just kind of, you know, like Basquiat became unpopular before he died, right? It's not like he's not popular now he's, you know, but at that time, that trend had ended, right? Like he was kind of, you know, all those people, Warhol, everyone, they were like kind of coming out of trend within that thing, it was over. I mean, Larry LeVon, you know, same situation. Towards the end, he was down and out because he was like, oh, you know, people don't like me anymore. He was like really kind of over it. And the hindsight of everything, people were like, wow, that he was Larry LeVon, right? 
So I think as an artist and creating things like with Lost Soul Saturn, we create all these different moments where in many years, like especially because electronic music, we're only 35 years in, 40 years in, something like that, dance music. So, I mean, for a, a musical style, I mean, you look at my wife is an opera singer, for example, right? She's like a professional opera singer. She was um, going to sing at the Wagner Festival in, in Bayreuth, right? They've been doing this thing since... 200 years, 250 <laughs> years, right? So when you talk about later, we look at and inspect what's happening now and over time, it's about creating things that last to a longer legacy of your body of work, I think is really important rather than trying to create things that are trend-based because they're not honest. I mean, and it's great when trends come back to you, you know, the, the big techno thing. You said you're going to work with Alan Alien. You're going to talk with Alien over the day. She's having another thing, yeah. right? She is and forever has been the, one of the queens of techno, right? She was one of the first people there. And now with the whole thing we were talking about the other day, her and I in Miami. And she's like, yeah, it's great because I'm seeing it again after all these years of her staying with the same thing, with the B-pitch thing, doing glitch, doing all that different stuff. And back to where it kind of started a bit faster techno and all this stuff, she said it's really cool for her to see the many different phases of a thing that you kind of belong to. So, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you said that people are telling you that you're playing some of the best sets of your career. You're as busy as ever. So how do you square, you know, all this touring? Like you you played like, what, four or five gigs the past weekend alone. Yeah. How, how do you survive? Six. Six. <laughs> yeah. so, so how do you survive in, in your adult mode? Uh, mate. I drink a lot of mate. <laughs> <laughs> that, it really works for me. But also, like, I, I have a, a double life. You know, I have my tour life, and then I have a really incredible home life with my wife and kids and a really, really supportive wife. It just allows me to not be a total degenerate left to my own self. Like, Seth alone, garbage. <laughs> like, if I'm able to be the full real lazy POS that I want to be where I could be for a couple hours in a hotel room and like, you know, sleep with chips on my chest and like a half eaten sandwich on like the bedside table, you know, like really get into it. Then that's like not the best version of myself, but to have again, back to the family and these other things, a partner that pushes me to be the best. And my wife, Kim, Kim Strabel, Kim Troxler, but whatever it's the shout out to my wife. She's awesome. Check her out. She's a really great singer. Uh, Deutsche Opera for Christmas, Hans, Hansel and Gretel. Everybody's <laughs> around. Uh, but um, the thing I've learned also with her career, like in opera, so, so few space for mistakes, right? If you sing two wrong notes, you're fired, right? <laughs> like I've seen it happen to people working with her. And she holds herself at such a high standard for all of her performances and for work and for life, you know? essentially also rubs off on you of how you perform like because she doesn't go to parties she's never gone to parties she doesn't go to parties she doesn't she's not into her thing at all she but when i go to work she's like oh toy 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 like go like you know if i don't have a great show she's like well what happened you know <laughs> why didn't you perform perfectly you know and I'm like, okay. like i'm like oh you know i was off she's like well you know <laughs> we're not like and when i was like okay sorry <laughs> sorry to disappoint you babe i was like it was just a hard one man i flew 20 hours <laughs> and i was but uh yeah, having that, I think, really kind of also helped and inspired me to be the best I can be all the time, you know? So uh, despite your obviously still busy schedule, do you find you have more downtime these days? Yeah, I mean, I think I have more downtime because I have less hangovers, <laughs> you know? 
my wife's really clear about whatever I do when I'm away. It's what I do when I'm away. But when I show up at home, I need to be present. And that's like the kind of one of the foundational rules of our relationship. So uh, I try to keep that good for her. So she's, you know, and it just helps me all around. Yeah. Does that mean you like drink less, et cetera, yeah, when, you're, when you're touring? Yeah, do it everything less. You know, I basically don't smoke weed. Or, yeah. Does yeah. that affect your relationship with promoters or the way people perceive Not you at all. all? Not at all. You know, I think so many artists believe you have to be out there. And maybe, you know, I did that for many years and those things. And a lot of the relationships that I have with promoters are relationships I've had for many years. And they're, they're all older too, you know? <laughs> so they don't want to really be out and have this guy, you know? So it's a different thing. Like the other day, I got myself in trouble in Toronto with new promoters, and I ended up drinking till five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but uh, generally, that's not really a part of my routine, let's say, as an artist or as me. So that that helps quite a lot. Yeah. And with you know, I guess more control over your lifestyle, let's say, and more more free time. Mm-hmm. What are your hobbies and interests aside from your family? Oh, and I using? cook, yo. I'm a fat boy for life. That's 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 my whole thing is food. Like it's like can all consuming both on tour life and as well on the, as when I'm at home. I just cook all day. You know, it's like a a point of also when you a point of control. Like to be able to drive your car or cook when you're constantly driving around and you're constantly eating at restaurants feels like freeing because you're finally in control of something in your life, right? Outside of like having to be told to go all these places and do this stuff. You're like, okay, I get to do this. And I guess hanging out with my kids, I don't really have time for much else. I just, we're just starting this new thing. Cause I could never really figure out TikTok, right? <laughs> There's like this generational situation where like, I was like, oh, but you know, you know, I watch my TikToks on Instagram, like adults, <laughs> you know, like, like it's a kind of a joke. Instagram reels are like, you know, actually TikToks, but like, but um, then I got on TikTok because I deleted everything when my wife was pregnant, but I, I had TikTok because I didn't use it. And I realized it was like really good for food, mm. <laughs> like for recipes and like places to eat. And I was like, oh, this is now I that because before my algorithm was like zits, like I like, <laughs> I like, I like popping zits. I like to watch it. And it got like really deep in that one. And I was like, it got a little too deep and scary, you know, like. When your when your Netflix algorithm messes up or like your Pornhub gets to like page twenty seven of like some weird dark stuff that you're into, you know, it's like my my TikTok had got, got kind of on that on that vibe. But now that I've switched it to food, it's really fun. And we just started doing this thing now when we travel around. You know how everyone has like their like catchphrase, right? So I was like, if I'm going to do a TikTok, kind of like how I'm doing this, I'm making a book with my friend Bill who's here about, you know, cause trying to keep up with this kind of rat race of content. But uh, we're doing this thing called put it in my mouth or put it in the garbage. <laughs> <laughs> so we're like, every time we eat, cause I'm always eating places, my friends, it's like, I try and do the, the whole thing. I'm like, oh, put it in my mouth or put it in the garbage. You gotta, be, you gotta have like a catchphrase. Well, what's the last thing you cooked that was really good? The last thing I cooked, wow. What did I cook that was really good recently? Hmm. Like I really broke down uh, this really great pho, like bone broth pho I made at home. I cook all sorts of stuff. That was good recently. I'm a sauce guy. But I cook a lot because everything's so expensive in Zurich. Mm. So I'm like cooking every day, you know. It's like we said, the best restaurant in Zurich is my house. 
I've got a, I've got a really good Bernays hack at the moment, a little tarragon. Also, oh, a yes, yes. pepper sauce, do black pepper sauce with like a little, like a half a teaspoon of gochujang. That sounds amazing. Woo! Lights up your mouth. Because <laughs> it's you just a little bit of spice and that kind of extra complexity of the red pepper. I ate at your restaurant in London many moons ago. Do you think you'll ever reopen it or open a new restaurant? Well, you know, I'm not saying off record, but there are some talks right now of some new projects we're working on that uh, Smoky Tales may return. Nice. Yeah, with some new menu items and trying to change it up. But yeah, in Switzerland and in London. So we're talking about getting some stuff. The sauce, my family, actually, we've just finally patented the uh, the recipe. So we're going to get that in stores soon, which is cool. Amazing. Yeah. So you like cooking. And you also talk about things a lot in terms of art. I know with your project, Lost of Saturn, yeah. which we'll get to in a, in a bit, you've done a lot of work with quite prestigious galleries yeah. around Europe and I guess around yeah. the world. Yeah. And how do you think electronic music interfaces with the contemporary art world? Like well, it's incredible. That's such a great question, you know, and it's incredible. I think right now we're at a very specific time where the contemporary art world is starting to take serious sound, right? Sound as art and the intersection of our artists who work with sound in, in kind of contemporary art world. You know, we look at Carl Craig, Who's so brilliantly his thing at yeah the DI Beacon of State you know he had his uh, after party party series that was named by New York Times as one of the best art exhibitions of the year when it came out you know this person from electronic music to cross over and I think the reception of it has really opened the doors for so many of us and I think Tom Trago just really did a did a thing for the Rijksmuseum Danny Day is now with his blue conception also if you look at uh, Jeremy Deller and all these other artists who are working kind of now with sound I mean obviously as well um, the classic Frucci makes me made me hardcore Mark Leckie Mark Leckie thank you so Mark Leckie who was there before and he has so many different people you know yeah, who are doing this, but like I had some, some friends of mine working with us in contemporary galleries with Lawrence and a lot of other people after me, and I was also doing some really cool stuff and switching over this kind of process of, of how electronic music and contemporary are intersect, you know? And I think being, again, in the, this kind of proto-period where people are doing contemporary dance pieces. There's so many different festivals and stuff. I think we're in this point now of that proto-period of the acceptance of new art into the contemporary art we're doing with sound. And that's really important, I think, for artists to start to look at the possibilities, I think, with the collaboration of contemporary artists, as well as different ways with the technologies we have now with AI and other things to create different things that live outside of the club world, you know, because there's so many things that we're able to see even creating this book with my friend Bill, because the in-between moments of touring and all these things I find to be art. It's the capturing of these moments of humanity. And there's so many things that we've all been part of with this with electronic music in terms of culturally being so progressive and you know art wise being so progressive and so many things happening in dance music or rave that then become the things that drive society you know both in commercialism and capitalism and all these different you know now every shop you go to in the world dance music's playing right it's like it makes sense that also that the art world is influenced or uh, many things that are art that say 
are birthed also from that community and come out, right? So us as artists to be aware now that that's possible to have that communication, I think, and legitimization. I mean, KLF to me are some of the best contemporary artists of the 20th century, what they did on multiple levels from recently their... Um, the 2023 with the, with the bricks, you can donate yourself to become part of this temple. And then the happening that they had a few years ago to the burning of the million pounds and all the, the lore that they created at the time seemed kind of fantastical and a bit jokey, but it was them creating art. And I think a big part of their career is never being legitimized as artists, you know? But I think right now we really have the potential to start to create new ideas from our cultural perspective that I think are really important to what art is kind of perceived for the next 100, 200 years and our kind of impact of what that cultural capital is in some ways. And do you think that this institutionalization and embrace by the contemporary art world of electronic music is good for electronic music culture? I think culture? it's incredible for electronic music culture. I think everything is good for everything. <laughs> I mean, and it's kind of funny because before I used to, I think having a really limited view on what a culture can be from a gatekeeper or whatever perspective actually and this is where my perspective has changed in some ways, I think damages the overall possibility of a thing that you want to see grow. And it's not your, like having a child, right? It's not your choice of who that child will become, you know? You helped create it. You can do everything you can to influence the projection or the the direction of that that burst item that you gave but what it becomes it's its own beast right it's its own it's its own thing and i think music we do the same we can contribute all we can with ideas and as artists our job is to create ideas that hopefully drive and move this thing in a way that we want for our own egos or whatever, but it doesn't fucking matter. It might, you know, like before I used to be like crazy about the EDM thing. But actually, factually, and I kind of always said this, that those people experiencing that music, which I thought was bad and may still think is bad or whatever, brought more people now to our scene and culture, which has now turned this into this really big, crazy thing. And it's not going to stop, you know, and that's incredible. Like, you know, and so many of those people who are listening to that music now listen to really good music, right? They come to space, they come to, you know, so it's entry point, you know, so you can't be angry about someone's entry point into a new culture or try to downplay them when, you know, it's incredible for the whole and for the contemporary art world, which is for us to be even considered as the arts, right? Because that's also kind of, I think also kind of a thing, right? For the, the, not the low arts, but like the high arts to consider a cultural movement in the same context as Holland has with electronic music Germany, you know, as part of the high arts, you know, that uh, my wife being, again, going back to my wife being in opera, that world is wow. I mean, those people are fucking mental. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Like, but it's like so strict the rules within contemporary art of why it's art and all these different things. And for our music, I think, to be considered with those same terms in that same kind of 
criticism, like really objective, analytical, cultural criticism, which is a lot deeper than like in a mix mag or, you know, or RA or whatever, like a deep cultural dive or like kind of how the wire used to be or all this stuff on why this was culturally significant moment, I think is really interesting of how we also understand ourselves from that third party projection of what is and it is not kind of relevant, you know, not just from our views, but from the view of kind of a greater academic society. Yeah, the one thing that sticks with me was at the Wolfgang Tillman's retrospective at MoMA. Yeah. There's all these amazing photos, and on the wall there's a photo of a, of a club, and it's just like a Resolute party in New York. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is in the, this, the Resolute is literally in, in the moment now. <laughs> yeah, <you know>? exactly. <laughs> Which is super crazy, you yeah. know? But the thing is, art is human happenings, right? And the human happenings that happen in raves, that happen in these dark corners, and these things are so expressive of the time that we live in. So it's only natural that it should be considered also expressive art, you know? Yeah, and so you know, with Lost Souls of Saturn, your project with Phil Maffa, you've you've done things at galleries, you've done installations. Yeah. So does this project like scratch a different itch for you than when you're making club records? Hundred million percent. Like the nerves of playing for twenty people an ambient set, <laughs> like at a crazy gallery, rather than playing. I have twenty thousand people. I put a record out. I'm like, here's a hit, you know. <laughs> but like, you know, trying to control tension of like an ambient set or a live set of doing, it's you're just exposed so much more, you know. I guess it's like the difference of an actor being on stage, doing a play rather than being on a film, right? That like you're just more bare, like there's more, especially playing live, there's more mistakes that, that could happen or all these different things. You can't change your course when you have a live set. You're like, all right, this is what's happening. You know, like they don't like it. You're like, well, you're really not going to like this next one. You know, we had that at Cap of Future, you know, like it was like, they had us booked between vintage culture and Tale of Us. <laughs> playing, like you listened to the album. Right? Like, so it, like, it was like, all right, you know, 5,000 people left you know, on the main stage. But the visuals were really cool. And the guy was happy because we had this whole thing about you know, Saturn worship. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was like, that's cool. It's different, but it definitely scratches a different itch. And it's something that Again, for myself and being in this, because that's project started before, you know, the pandemic. And we actually made the new album, all of it right before in the studio, right before the pandemic. Really, I remember when it's hitting New York, we were like, had to stop finishing the album because like I was like, I gotta get the fuck out of here. <laughs> like, I was like living around the corner and like the world was shutting down and New York was like a hotbed, you know, as we all remember. But creating that and doing this project with Phil, who's incredible, you know, and us just like how we work in the studio and kind of, and also the great people we had on the album, you know, Greg Paulus here coming in, inviting a lot of different musicians and doing everything only with machines. And it's like, it definitely hits a different artistic thing. And it also got me back into, I've got like lots of new solo music coming out and all this other stuff. Cause I think for a while from DJing, I just got so into the ease of DJing and, you know, whatever, picking up a paycheck or, and then coming home kind of hungover and not wanting to work during the week to now really actively loving the process of doing music and playing live and all that stuff. Again, it definitely changes a lot for, for me, you know, it just gave me a lot of energy of why, again, back to the beginning of the conversation. But the Lost Souls thing is incredible. We just, the new album is an, I know we just sent you some stuff, but it's like an augmented reality comic that is like one of the first Synesthesia-based comics that as you go through the comic with like, 
the Apple glasses, all that shit's not out yet, but like you got to use your phone. And as you go through the page by page, each frame in the comic is like kind of like an Ableton clip where it is recognized by the app and then it comes alive in the animation, but then also is the trigger for the next, um, the next sound point. So it's like a seamless flow of sound design, like a film, but triggered through the comic, which has never really happened before. So you get like this, yeah, like the sound track, let's say, from pieces of the album that we use to create this kind of journey through the comic and tell our kind of origin stories of these two alien losers. And the, you know, the first album, we had like these big billboards, first augmented reality covers and all this stuff. I mean, it's all largely unnoticed, which is kind of funny. <laughs> But uh, it, it's it's also it's cool though because like it's been largely unnoticed in the electronic community, but in the art community, people are like really into it. You know, it's like these big museums are like, wow, this is incredible. But then like, you know, everyone else just doesn't know it exists, which is pretty funny. I also don't care, so I just keep making because I I think it's important work and we liked creating it and it's like Phil and I's little thing. You um, have this album. Why do an augmented reality comic with it? Oh, well, we did augmented reality from the beginning, right? And it's also uh, living as a four-part 360 video installation at WN Curates. We're launching in February with this collaboration we had with Hinkson Studios, who did Massive Attack stuff, and then Aaron Kulik, our longtime video collaborator, as well as the guy, uh, Rob Shields, who did the comic, and then either Blake Shaw or my wife's father, who's actually the director for some of the Black Mirrors. And uh, the question is not why, but why not, right? Why not, at my point in my career, take risk and create new things for, I think, I want culturally for people to experience or hopefully for other people to be inspired by other artists, my peers, to create new things. Then uh, who else does it, right? You know, that's, I think, at this point in my career, I need to take those risks and I need to, like, take on new artists to help and stuff. It's less about me and being comfortable. I think comfortability ruins artists, right? When I got comfortable and I got complacent is when I got boring. And when you keep pushing yourself for new ideas is when you create, I think, the best works. I guess my question is more, why is it important to you to have all these, what some people might call extra things around the music? Well, it's part of the music. You know, Lost Souls of Saturn is... I think a big part of the concept albums behind Lost Souls of Saturn with the film that we created for the first one and this and all this stuff. And they're all, it's all tells one story, like both albums and everything with Lost Souls of Saturn is a very closed box of story. And the idea where we started the project 10 years ago was the idea of conceptual album had been lost, right? Like coming from Detroit, concept and techno were always so closely tied. That was so important to our whole mythology of music from UR to Richie Houghton to everyone. There's a concept and you create the concept and that's the musical output, right? And now with Spotify, everything's like, yeah, the track has to be four minutes to fit on a playlist that you'll never be paid for and all that. So it's like, fuck that. Like, why do that? Like the new album it will be released as a vinyl that's continuous play. There's not even different tracks on it, you know? Like, it's just like, why not just create new ideas? Because we wanted this album to focus on the listening experience. Like, hey, put it on and flip it over, and that's what it is. It's not, you know, you, you can get the tracks digitally and you can have your favorite song or whatever, but it's about trying to create a concept 
Like this is meant like in a museum, this is meant to be viewed or heard in this way, right? This is this is the idea that it is. So with this thing, it's like here is the idea. And it's meant to be consumed as that, right? As the whole thing. And you can like dissect it. Like for example, that the last Daft Punk album with with the Get Lucky and all that. What was that called? Random Excess Memories. Yeah, you're right. As a whole, what a great listening experience. Like if you listen from one end to the other. When it got reviewed, I think people were dissecting each individual point rather than when you put that album on as a whole, it's like like sonically it was crazy. I mean, or even this is a really old album, but um, Beach Boys, Pet Sounds. Took me forever in my life. I said it's got the record store. It's the best album ever. Best album ever. It's like, oh, whatever, you're just kidding. Then I started listening. Then I, I got a hi-fi sound system and I listened to Pet Sounds after having a breakup. <laughs> and I was like, this album talks to me. <laughs> like when you listen to it song after song and you listen to the kind of yeah the, the guided narration of these idea through the whole thing you're like wow and i think techno albums or dance albums are just become songs here's a bunch of dance songs here's an album cool i mean kevin in the back i know he doesn't do that he's a concept man big big we come from the same school though right we're born cut from the same cloth but this whole thing it's like that that idea had ended, you know, and so much niche concept stuff that is concept album lives in this world of hyper niche. So I think being a bigger dance artist per se, I don't know what the fuck I don't like to think about that, but being in my position and then creating something to try to guide people more towards different ideas is, is important for me. And I think important for my audience. And I guess something like the comic is a, another way for to make people sit and listen to it. And yeah, think it's about like it, another, right? and also like the whole point of the album or the project is about different delivery systems of music. Like so, with the first album, we had the big thing at Saatchi, we had a gallery show, we had all this as one way. So we like this. That album was a installation. This album is a comic. I think the next album might be like a ballet or contemporary art piece or some dance, whatever. So we're like trying to think of all these different ways to say the same story over and over again in different delivery systems. And I think that's new to electronic music. And we have a catalog number for every happening or anything that we've ever done. And it's like at the long term, after, you know, 20, 30 years, we're going to have this body of work that on paper is like this cool thing, you know, and it's like, it's all, even all the crazy ideas or anything I've done, like the naked thing or bats or, you know, all this stuff. All, they're all really easily cultural reference point. Like when I did the naked video thing for whatever, that was from Stefan Stegmeister, this graphic designer I was really into in, in college. And he created this thing called Stegmeister Inc. And he had this two things, two pictures of him naked, one with a long, like kind of blurred out thing and one with a short one. And it's like, whatever. And I thought that was always a great idea. So but every little thing I've always done always has these little reference points. If you want to dig in, then you can find that. So you're a performance artist, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I am not hoop. <laughs> you know? yeah. If you know me, then you know I'm not this guy I've kind of created. I'm actually quite conservative and boring <laughs> I mean, not so boring but when it comes to making a concept album like you just did how does the concept end up in the music itself or how do you approach writing that well the first album we did we did the music and then the concept but this album we did the concept and then the music so with the comic we created 
the comic, the idea, the comic. Then we started creating sounds for it, and we're creating music simultaneously as creating the concept. And so it was like kind of the opposite direction of how it informed each other. But yeah, it's like, it was funny because we created this thing, then we created all this music for the comic, then we used also pieces for the music. It's just, it was a different kind of experiment to do it. But uh, yeah, that's how it worked. <laughs> Is it difficult? Is it difficult? It's a different type of release, you know? I think whenever we make music, Phil and I, we kind of say, so our whole comic's about like this kind of get lost, not get lost, but uh, um, they live. Sorry. <laughs> like kind of... Uh, kind of a situation where like so these two aliens they come and they like embody us and then we like get in these trances this really does happen <laughs> it's weird and we just make these things and it comes out and we're like wow that that was crazy that's what it is you know and not trying to really guide the music and rather just kind of see what naturally happens again passenger rather than trying like we don't sit down and like we're gonna sit out we're gonna make a techno banger or we're gonna make this jazz song today we just sit down and start kind of working and just playing around. We got a bunch of synths and stuff in the, like locked away here. Then we just start working until we find something that is like, we're like, well, that was cool. And then, uh, or that wasn't cool. <laughs> and then it goes in the garb, goes in the garbage. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's the kind of creative process that we have with it. I think when I do remixes or other things, it's a bit different, but yeah, just sit down and see what happens. You know, I think that's, Again, back to the art process of just constantly creating and just seeing what comes out of it, you know. And you said before, uh, pessimistically, that you think it like maybe it won't sell. How much does it matter to you with this project? I don't care if it sells or not. I think so much of major music sales are about sales, you know. Um, I hope it sells, you know. I hope people are into it. But it goes against 50-minute continuous album. Where does that sit on Spotify or Apple Music or any of that stuff, right? They don't really, like, where do they <laughs> where do they place that, right? Or, like, in a record store, will someone want to spend 15 bucks on a, 20 bucks on a record that just is for them to listen to in their homes, right? I'm not sure. Like, that's a risk. I mean, I really like the other things that we're doing with the album and this comic stuff. We're working with this guy, Mike Bendel, who... Uh, is big in that comic world. And we're looking at some other ways to place the comic kind of in the actual comic world itself, uh, rather live in our world solely, you know? So that's like another kind of, he worked on the Marvel stuff and mm -hmm. does all this kind of bigger, his kind of Comic-Con kind of world types thing and see how that kind of plays. I mean, I think also in my career, I don't have to live and die by sales, you know? Because most people don't really even think of me sadly as like an artist so much they think of me as this persona of this guy who's like wild or some dj when i do all this stuff on the side that like no one really knows i do but that's like also i don't mind it used to bother me but now i don't care <laughs> you know i really don't i just like it's the, the thing i do and i just continue to do i hope it sells it's really good we did a great some great collabs we did this one with um it's an incredible band from detroit proto martyr um and that really funny coincidence, like the, uh, the guitarist, Adam, we met at my 10-year high school union some years ago, like almost 10 years ago. He was dating this girl I went to high school with. And I was like, oh, you're in Proto Martyr? It's like my favorite <laughs> band from the city at the time. And we got him and the lead singer to do this really crazy, like, sonic distortion. Like, it's great. It's a track like, like Chaser and some other music. We got this really famous sitar player that Phil knows on this kind of reggae track and 
Greg Paulus and John Camp. Craig came here, did some great session work with us playing. And we got a bunch of different kind of musicians and session players to come in and do do parts for the kind of bed of beats and everything that we're making. And and yeah, it's just been it's just been a great experience bringing kind of more musicality in, and also not trying to think about hey, let's make a techno, you know, just make some. Can music come back, right? That's like also like an experiment. Can you just do a music album that doesn't fit within this, you know, isn't like a linear trance album <laughs> at yeah. the moment? Like, will that work? You know, you could be surprised. You never know, you know? And are you going to do more live shows around it? We hope so. If anyone wants to book us, <laughs> you know, that's where it comes out. You know, you want to do things, but it's, I think it's just how it's perceived and, yeah, you never know, you know. Artists aren't too big to fail, you know. And I think it's good to fail, you know. If you believe in something, then just believe in it. That's good enough. You know, you said that you were looking to have like a body of work that you could be proud of with this project. Yeah. So is, like, is your legacy something you're, you're thinking of about Le these days? Le legacy is a big thing in my life. Yeah, definitely. Again, we go back to the thing that since working with being on RA or doing all this stuff, I've gone from being a kid to like, I'm still, even the other day, man, all these people come up to me all the time. They're like, oh man, it was so into you when I was a kid. I'm like, we're the same age. <laughs> like, I'm, like, I'm like, I'm not that old. Like, I'm like, how old are you? Like, I'm like, I'm like four years older than you. Man. You know, like, but you've been in it for so long that like you forget the different phases and all these things that you've done. But I guess at some point, legacy for, for some years have been a big part of starting to think about legacy because it's so important to create something lasting after putting your whole life into something, you know? How will my kids see it, you know? I don't want my kids to see me as like some fucking loser, you know, <laughs> who is like on one all the time. You know, like, you know, I don't want to be that dad. You know, my kids would be like, oh, my dad's in museums and my mom's an opera singer. That's cool, right? And uh, rather than like them going on YouTube and I'm like, my clothes are off and I'm like running around, <laughs> like, you know, berating people about their taste and like being this total maniac, which was very fun for many years. But, uh, you know, that's just not the full scope of my artistry. And I think at some point in hindsight, some of those antics took away from the real like concentrated work that I try to do because I don't take a lot of things seriously but I do take the music very very seriously and collecting this music I take it very seriously you know and being part of this thing or everything else I joke about and do all these things but at the end of the day I'm I'm really quite studious about everything that's going on and trying to keep this for new generations and create things that kind of last I think that's important to me do you uh, regret your actions in those earlier years? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I got I got some regrets. <laughs> I like some apologies. I know we got to get in a fight once kind of thing. <laughs> I apologize for that, you know. But it's two people with opinions, right? And I think our space actually how I do regret some things I said. I do feel like it's important to have a free pace to think no matter what those ideas are and if your ideas don't and other people's ideas don't meet I think that's okay too, you know? I remember some years ago, I got in it. We're friends now with Camel Fat. I got a fight with them on the internet over 
saying that their song sucked. <laughs> it's my job to say people's songs suck, right? That's like our job, right? If you yeah, yeah. <laughs> really, literally, that's our job, right? I don't like something, I like it. That's what we're paid to do, right? That's like, we've listened to music this whole time. That's what, So it's yeah. like, there should be an open forum to be able to say that. And, you know, and I, I as artists, sometimes you're fucking ass gets hurt or whatever. You're, you're like, fuck, it sucks. But that's someone's job to do that, right? And you can't. You have to be open and respectful for that space for them to be able to do that. You know that that's like the beautiful thing about also being in this very progressive culture is to be able to have space to do these things and speak about these things in a very open way. You know, I think sometimes some of that space now is becoming more and more limited due to like kind of I don't want to say woke culture because I consider myself a woke person or like whatever, but within this kind of cultural dynamic of like hypersensitivity and also of ways that we have to address things, which is progressive in so many ways. I think people also need to look at this and be like, it's still a conversation. You know, I think that goes through all of society and politics and other things that, you know, like, God, I, I, I can't say. <laughs> I'll say. No, I'm going to say like currently with the Palestine, Israel, situation you don't have to choose a side you can have a p opinion on both sides right and that should be openly available to speak about or many other things you should openly be able to speak about both sides and just openly say maybe both things are wrong <laughs> you know that's that's okay you know but i think we're in a situation now where maybe you we can't do that with many things and it's kind of funny i was with harvey over the summer and we're talking and Harvey's great, you know, sitting at the bar, having a beer, like, you know, kind of like, it's like with Harvey, I'm like, you know, <laughs> having one of those moments with your, you know, your peer friends, you know, I call them friend tours. And he goes, yeah, you know, you know, Seth, he's like, I don't do interviews anymore. And I was like, why? And he's like, I'm too old to kind of stop myself from saying something I want. He's like, so I just stopped doing them. And I was like, that's incredible, but it's also a bit sad that someone who actually could have some really incredible things to say yeah. stops themselves from saying it or even being put in a position where they could express those things off the fear of, of possibly losing their job over saying one wrong thing, you know? And I, I, sometimes that's rightfully deserved. Some opinions aren't opinions that we should share. And I think uh, culturally, we all get behind those ideas and like these things are wrong, you know? homophobia, racism, all these things, you know, there's a cultural things that we kind of all agreed on. No, but then there's just basic everyday shit that it's like, yo, we can talk about this. Like, like, like let's have the conversation, right? That should be clear and, and open, especially within our culture. I think that is prides itself on progression of ideas and freedom. Yeah. Do you feel like you're a quieter person than you used to be as a result of everything we've talked about? hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. <laughs> No, and people are like, why don't you get in? Because also I, I found when I was my most active politically and doing all these things, no one really fucking cared, you know? <laughs> like I did all this, like there's a lot of different festivals and other things. I was like, oh, I'm too, no, they do this thing or fund these things and I don't play them and I'm not going to do it and I didn't do it. And you know what? Everyone else did it, got paid. <laughs> like, and no one fucking cared. So I was like, Why? You know why I like put myself in these positions where I'm like trying to be righteous. And actually at the end of the day, your, your fans don't care. Promote, no one fucking cares. You know, it's like I care. I think some friends around me care. But the self-righteousness about behind being righteous all the time is at one point you get live in an echo chamber 
And then when you leave that echo chamber, you're like, actually, the fucking world is bigger than this like small little box that me and my liberal friends who are you know, academic and like really want to talk about things live in. And then you leave that and you're just like, fuck it. You know, I just want to be comfortable and take care of my family, you know, rather than try to have, like even with going back to the Israel thing, when this happened, I had some friends being like, aren't you going to comment? And I'm like, nope. I'm going to, I made one comment. I was like, it's really sad as a father to see so many innocent lives lost and so many families going through this, which I believe, you know, my wife is Jewish. My kids are Jewish, like whatever. But I still think on the other side, it's sad to see these things, you know, you can, you have to be able as a human to take in all perspectives. And that's all I said. And that's all I'm going to say, you know, that is incredibly tragic things happening in the world that are sad to see. But I think trying to like, who am I to give my perspective on one of the most complicated global political <laughs> fucking things of our time, right? It's like what every DJ is going to solve the world, like jumping in on these, these incredibly complicated social issues that we're going through constantly. Like, oh, pat on the back. You saw, you solved racism, you know, like, it's like way to go. The world's going to change tomorrow. It's not, you know? So it's like, just shut the fuck up and get on with your art, right? And create that. Yeah, I mean, I agree that, you know, not every DJ should have to comment on a complicated political situation. It's crazy. But do you think that it's a negative thing that, as you said, that so many people don't care and, and nobody cares and the industry just goes on and, you know, some I, might see it as a lack of principles? That's the whole thing. It's like so many things are so principle-based, but then so, so many things aren't where it's like where do we as a culture – recognize like, okay, so if we're really hyper principalized about one thing, but then not about another thing, then like, then is there any principle at all? Right. I think, you know, like black lives matter is a big thing. When that thing happened, people were really hyper principalized about other things. But when our kind of thing happened, it was kind of like, I went under the rug. Like I was like, we we're like, uh, all right, <laughs> I guess we didn't change anything here. You know, <laughs> like, I mean, saying culturally within music, you know, there wasn't a huge change as a minority artist of, after that happening of what then happened, writer inclusions, all this, like whatever, all this other stuff doesn't like, doesn't really change the marker so much. So I think either like our society has to be fully awakened and, you know, like what critical like art is, you know, about everything and everything comes under the cutter. Or, you know, I think it's a really important that us as artists share different political views and share opportunities for fans and people who follow us also to be able to understand these complex issues, I think, socially within our culture. But I think a lot of, and, and also share our issues on much bigger cultural issues, you know? I just don't feel like we have to say every day have an opinion. I think everyone's got too many fucking opinions these days. It's like, you know? And I also realized that through time and adulthood that like, does your opinion really matter that much? Do you have to share your opinion that much or does anyone have to care about your opinion <laughs> you know like i think the young generation think their opinion matters when you're older you realize you're, you're just another voice in the crowd right it's like no one cares about your opinions or your feelings and when you realize that life is just a bit easier i think from my perspective you talked a lot about you know getting older, perspective, et cetera, and it seems like a lot of your interest now is in like making this kind of music. You said you wanted to be in museums one day. I know, but I'm making all loads of house and like techno music as Seth Troxler. You know, that's still 
what I do and like what I'm really happy to make is to remix of Lovely Day for Defected, a thing for Louis Vega, a bunch of, I'm doing like loads of stuff with that. But it's again, a duality. You can have it all, but I'm sorry to interrupt That's you. Um, do you think you'll ever stop DJing? I don't know. I, it's funny. I was talking to Marco about this the other day, Marco Carolla. And I was like, Marco, do you think you'll ever retire? He goes, I see no end. <laughs> like, I was like, amazing. <laughs> like, but like so cold, like he's like, I see no end. There's no reason for end. You know, <laughs> like I was like, all right, Mark. But it's like, it depends. I mean, it's like, where will life take me, take us, take the world? I mean, fuck, who knows? It could be a World War Three in a couple, you know, there's a pandemic. You never know where, I mean, I, I'm going to DJ as long as I can and I feel excited about DJing and as long as people will have me, you know, and people keep having me and kids like it, you know, and yeah, let's just take it as long as I can. Like I can see, you know, I mean, I'm coming up on 20 years professionally. That'll be 2005. So I actually, I, call, so I call my professional career started in 05 because I did panorama bar on these stuff. So that's 20 years in. I don't know if I got another 20 in me. But uh, we'll see. You know, you look at guys like Carl Cox and everyone else, and they're, you know, still having time of their lives. Laurent, you know, does 20-something gigs a year. They're still guys performing in some capacity. I mean, I think when you're a lifer, like us here, or you're forever a lifer. There's no non-point of being involved in some way or actively or passively in the thing that you're passionate about. I don't think that's like a possibility as someone who has a deep passion for anything, you know? You could maybe play less, do other things, but why somehow, you know, those 12,000 records at my house, you know, <laughs> I just give them up one day and, you know, like, no, I don't, I don't know. I think only time will tell. But I used to have a really definitive idea in my mind that I'm not gonna do this anymore and this will only be this certain amount of time. You know, but I don't. I don't believe that anymore. Laura Garnier has this thing where he thinks thirty-three years is the perfect amount of time. So maybe thirty-three yeah. or forty-five <laughs> years is, is you have to you have to end it if you want to continue. But I don't. I don't know. I just don't know where even music goes. Maybe it's AI who DJs the clubs, or like you know who who know. Maybe I get phased out. We'll see. I mean, God. This interview, maybe I got canceled. I don't know. <laughs> like, like I could be done tomorrow. Uh, but uh, yeah, overall, I think it's unlimited. We'll see. Are you still passionate about DJing? I about the it. active DJing? I fucking love it. <laughs> like after the pandemic, I realized how much I truly love to play records. Like it's like it was getting me down at one point before, but now I'm just like every show, I'm like, yep, <laughs> let's do it. It's fun. It's a fun job. Do you think we'll ever see the Bats video in MoMA? <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. Bats in MoMA. You know, it really took me a very long time to come to terms with that. <laughs> like, you know, but uh, now I wish I would have made merch. <laughs> you know? It would have been great. 20 years of Bats. Make a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, it could be possible because it was also one of the first viral moments mm. in kind of our community to kind of do that pre we even know it was called viral then and yeah. like, you know so it, it could be as like a retrospective works of of viral electronic music moments <laughs> <laughs> at the very beginning because it's a, again the progression of time so <laughs> Seth Troxler bats like the first little point <laughs> that's a good legacy yeah right oh fuck 
take what you can get, right? <laughs> At least you're like a blip in history, right? Even if it's like the small moment of brevity you had, like you're just like, fuck, this is that's what it's gonna be. I mean, you could be like the my pillow guy, <laughs> yeah. or like you know, there's a lot of other things you want to, you'd less want to be famous for, <laughs> I guess. God. In the darkness, we will remember the sun and moon always shine, whether we see it or not. Thanks for listening to this RA Exchange with Seth Troxler. Many thanks to Andrew Rice for moderating this interview, to Gavin Lewis for facilitating the talk, Kevin McHugh for recording assistance, and Guy Clark for editing. This interview was filmed in Brooklyn, New York, and clips from the talk can be seen on our YouTube and social media pages. The track playing in the outro of this episode is from Seth Troxler's Lost Souls of Saturn project. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the RA Exchange and listen to our full archive of conversations on ra.co or on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. Until next time, take care.